Hi listeners, it's Lainey from Parcast with a Valentine's Day gift just for you. It's a special three-part crossover from my series, Crimes of Passion, that takes a closer look at the disturbing effects of catfishing. What happens when someone's online deceptions turn deadly? Stay tuned. And for more tales of relationships gone terribly wrong, be sure to follow Crimes of Passion free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, assault, exploitation of a minor, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In September of 2012, 21-year-old college football star Manti Teo graced the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. He wasn't only there because of his impressive athletic skills, he'd also experienced terrible heartbreak. For the past three years, Teo had been a linebacker at the University of Notre Dame. All the while, he'd been in contact with a Polynesian woman named Lene Kakua. The pair met on Facebook, then became close friends over text messages and phone conversations. After a couple years, they took their relationship to the next level. Though they'd never met in person, their bond was undeniable. But then, tragedy struck. In June of 2012, Kakua told Teo she'd been diagnosed with terminal leukemia. She was dying but wanted Teo to keep playing football in her honor. So, during his senior year, Teo rocketed through the ranks of college sports. He told interviewers he was playing for his girlfriend. The story of their star-crossed love spread as his career blossomed, but it wasn't meant to last. On September 12, 2012, Kakua's brother called Teo to say his sister had succumbed to her illness. The news hit Teo hard, Both Sports Illustrated and College Game Day featured profiles on his heart-wrenching story. There was just one problem. Kakua didn't exist. She never had. Every time Teo thought he was talking to his girlfriend, he was actually corresponding with a man who lived in California. Kakua was a total fabrication. Manti Teo had been catfished. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the first episode in a special three-part series on catfishing. Over the next three weeks, we'll explore how people use the internet to assume fake identities. Some catfishes act out of loneliness or insecurity, while others have more sinister intentions. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're covering the Tall Hot Blonde case. In 2005, a 46-year-old father of two crafted a fictitious online persona. At first, it was all fun and games, but then he met Tall Hot Blonde, a 17-year-old who lived hundreds of miles away. Fantasy and reality melted together, and before long, both sides were embroiled in a deadly love triangle. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. People were creating false identities for personal gain, long before the word catfishing entered the lexicon. In the late 1700s, a woman named Jeanne de la Moutte wrote letters posing as Marie Antoinette. Jeanne pretended to be royal so she could get her hands on a massive diamond necklace. And she nearly got away with it before her scheme unraveled. In plays such as Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream and Edmund Rostand's Cyrano de Bergerac, Characters falsify or swap identities in the name of love. The origins of the term catfishing are as elusive as catfishes themselves. It's possible that the word was inspired by Charles Marriott's 1913 novel called The Catfish. In it, the narrator states, quote, Quite early in life, George Tracy discovered that if he were to be reasonably happy and prosperous, he must pretend. And that's exactly what modern-day catfishes do. But the term really took hold because of a 2010 documentary titled Catfish. The film followed Nev Shulman's journey to uncover the true identity of his online girlfriend. It grew so popular that it led to a spin-off show on MTV. It seemed like there were an endless number of people fabricating online identities. These catfishes made fake profiles, went by false names, and lied about their locations, ages, and occupations. Most often, they didn't have bad intentions. They were just looking for connection or escape and found themselves in over their heads. This is a common theme in catfishing stories. What begins as a harmless bit of fun turns into something far more damaging. And that's exactly what happened in small-town New York in 2005. At the time, social networks like MySpace and Facebook were just starting to take off. More often than not, internet users hung out in chat rooms or on gaming forums. One popular site was called Pogo. For 46-year-old Thomas Montgomery, a red-headed man whose hair was just beginning to thin, Pogo was a welcome break from his humdrum life. In the spring of 2005, Montgomery lived in Clarence, a tiny town in upstate New York. 
He spent his days working at a local Dynabraid factory, creating parts for power tools. In the evenings, he came home to his wife of 16 years, Cindy, their two young daughters, and their dog. He had a steady job and a loving family, but deep down, Thomas Montgomery was bored. He started staying up late playing games online. He hung around in chat rooms corresponding with other players. It all began innocently enough. That's how Montgomery met a girl who went by the screen name Tall Hot Blonde. Tall Hot Blonde's real name was Jessie. She was a 17-year-old high school student who lived in West Virginia, and she asked Montgomery if he wanted to be friends. Montgomery stared at his computer screen, torn. He did want a friend, but he worried his age would scare off Tall Hot Blonde. Montgomery gazed at his screen name, Marine Sniper. That wasn't a lie. He had been in the Marines, and perhaps that's what inspired his false identity. Montgomery told Jesse that his name was Tommy. He claimed to be an 18-year-old Marine fresh out of boot camp, about to be deployed to Iraq. He told her that he was 6'2 and 190 pounds with a black belt in karate. He even sent her a photograph of himself, a headshot that had been taken decades prior when he actually was in the military. Jessie bought the whole thing. She didn't ask how Tommy had access to a computer and internet at boot camp, and she didn't seem to realize how out of date his picture was. She just accepted Montgomery's story and the pair continued talking. Montgomery fully embodied his new identity. Every night, he logged on to Pogo and told Jesse vivid details about his made-up life. He wove a tragic story about his fictional parents. He said his mother died of cancer when he was 12 and he joined the Marines partially because his father was a military man. Before long, he claimed he'd been deployed and pretended that he was communicating with Jesse all the way from Iraq. From there, the story got dramatic. The fictional Tommy told Jesse that being stationed in Iraq was taking too much out of him, and he was contemplating suicide. It's not clear if Montgomery was actually experiencing suicidal ideation, if this was just a story he told, or if he was looking for a way out of his relationship with Tall Hot Blonde. It's possible that he felt guilty about lying and was trying to break off their connection without admitting the truth. But the thought of losing Tommy ignited new feelings in Jesse. Even though they'd never met, she confessed that she cared about him deeply. She made him promise to stay alive for her. Tommy told Jesse that she was the best thing that ever happened to him. In Montgomery's eyes, there was no way out now. And if he was honest with himself, he liked talking to Jesse. She made him feel young, attractive, wanted. Even though it was predicated on a lie, their relationship felt real and it was about to turn another corner. As their connection grew more intimate, so did Jesse's photos. What had once been innocent pictures grew racier. She sent suggestive snapshots of herself in bikinis and miniskirts. 17-year-old Jessie 
thought she was embarking on a sexual relationship with a teenage Marine, not a middle-aged father of two. But Montgomery had abandoned any moral qualms he might have had about lying to her. He accepted the photos, even though legally, Jesse was a minor. The growing sexual aspect of their relationship wasn't just problematic, it was illegal. Nevertheless, the pair sent explicit messages back and forth. It's not quite clear when they made their relationship official, but within a matter of months, Jesse considered the fictional Tommy her boyfriend. And as it turned out, Montgomery was the jealous type. Perhaps because he'd been lying to Jesse, he got worried that she was also lying to him. He accused her of sending intimate photos to other men. It was their first big fight. In the end, she apologized by sending him a package via snail mail. 46-year-old Montgomery walked out of the house that he shared with his wife and children. He took the parcel from the mailbox. It was addressed from Jesse all the way from West Virginia. He tore it open. Inside was a silver chain with a key-shaped pendant, the so-called key to Jesse's heart. But that wasn't all. At the bottom of the package was a pair of underwear. It was lingerie from a teenager, and Thomas Montgomery brought it into his home. If anything, this taught Montgomery that Jesse was even more gullible than he'd thought. She'd mail the package to New York, not Iraq. It's unclear what he told her, but it seems likely that he convinced Jesse his home address was some kind of pickup location for military mail. It was the point of no return. Overtaken by lust, love, or perhaps just the power of fantasy, Montgomery asked Jesse to marry him. It was December of 2005. They'd been talking for a total of eight months. Jesse said yes. It wasn't a conventional engagement. Montgomery didn't send his fiancée a ring. Instead, he mailed Jesse poinsettias. But that was enough for her. She sent more lingerie, then a dog tag engraved with the phrase, Tom and Jesse, always and forever. Beyond these gifts, the pair also started talking on the phone more. They spoke for exactly 20 minutes each day from 6.30 to 6.40 a.m. and from 3.30 to 3.40 p.m. because that's when Tommy was supposedly off duty. In reality, that's probably when Montgomery was going to and from work at the Dynabraid factory. Making sure he only called Jesse while out of the house was likely a precaution. Even though he promised to marry Jesse, his actual wife, Cindy, still knew nothing about his online romance. But Montgomery's co-workers did. While he was tight-lipped at home, he loved to tell his colleagues about his younger love interest. He went so far as to say he was planning to leave his wife and move to West Virginia to be with Jesse. It sounded ridiculous. Montgomery's co-workers thought he had to be kidding. But in Montgomery's mind, there was nothing silly about it. The line between 18-year-old Tommy and 46-year-old Montgomery had completely blurred. He truly believed his new relationship could work. 
Montgomery's New Year's resolution was to transform into his alter ego, and it appears that he truly thought such a transition was possible. On a pad of paper at work, he wrote to himself, On January 2nd, 2006, Tom Montgomery ceases to exist and is replaced with an 18-year-old battle-scarred Marine. He is moving to West Virginia to be with the love of his life. To soften the blow for his wife and children, he resolved to leave them over a million dollars, an amount of money he absolutely didn't have. But of course, when the new year began, Thomas Montgomery was still a middle-aged man. He didn't magically change into the person he wanted to be. However, he didn't give up hope. In another private note, he wrote, I wish I could know the exact time I would change to new Tom to prepare for it. Montgomery was losing his grip on reality, and though his wife didn't know exactly what was going on, she could see that something was seriously wrong. Cindy started searching for answers. Coming up, Montgomery's wife sends his teenage fiance a letter. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In January of 2006... 46-year-old Thomas Montgomery was teetering on the edge of a dangerous fantasy. Despite having a wife already, he truly believed he'd be able to marry Jessie, a 17-year-old girl he'd met online about nine months prior. But their relationship was a sham. Jessie believed Montgomery was an 18-year-old Marine, not a middle-aged man, not a middle-aged married father of two. Montgomery's actual wife, Cindy, could tell something was off. Every day when he got home from work, he went straight to the computer. Their marriage was suffering and so was his relationship with their daughters. Cindy suspected her husband was having an affair. In February, she searched their house for proof and it didn't take long to find what she was looking for. Hidden in various locations were underwear, jewelry, and letters. 
She read through one of the letters, skimming a random woman's declarations of love, and that's when Cindy's heartbreak turned to horror. She realized her husband was using a fake name. He claimed to be 18 years old, and he was cheating on her with a teenager. Cindy was beyond disgusted, but a divorce would be messy and hard on their daughters. That would have to be worked out at another time. In that moment, all she cared about was ending Montgomery's relationship with Jesse. Cindy was a mother after all. She felt like it was her job to protect the 17-year-old. So she drafted a letter to Jesse explaining that 18-year-old Tommy didn't exist. He was nothing more than a figment of Thomas Montgomery's imagination. Cindy wrote, "'You are much closer to my daughter's age than mine, let alone Montgomery's. In this alone, he can be prosecuted as a child predator.'" To close out her note, Cindy told Jesse to be more careful and to never trust words on the internet. She stuck the letter in an envelope along with a family photo that showed the real Thomas Montgomery. Then she sent it to Jesse's address in West Virginia. With that done, Cindy refused to share a bed with her husband any longer. Montgomery was relegated to sleeping in the basement. Cindy needed time to figure out exactly what to do. Her marriage was broken and she had to find a way to move forward but the story was far from over. When Jessie received the letter, she scanned the words, unable to believe what she was reading. She looked at the picture of Montgomery's family. The man smiling in the photo looked sort of like an aged version of Tommy, but it was impossible to tell for sure. Jessie was more confused than heartbroken. She'd known Tommy for almost a year and had heard his voice twice a day for several months. She couldn't believe it was all a lie. She needed more information, so she used Pogo, the same gaming site where she'd met Montgomery, to reach out to Brian Barrett. 22-year-old Brian was one of Montgomery's co-workers at the Dynabraid factory. He and Montgomery sometimes played poker online together. Even though Jessie hadn't known Montgomery's real identity, she did know he and Brian were friends. Jessie didn't beat around the bush. She asked Brian if 18-year-old Tommy really existed or if she'd been the victim of a long, drawn-out hoax. Brian's computer dinged and he read through the message. He could hardly believe the words on the screen. He knew Montgomery was talking to a younger girl, but he didn't realize his coworker had created a false identity. He felt terrible for Jesse, but he had to tell her the truth. Tommy was fake. She'd been corresponding with a 46-year-old the entire time. Jesse was devastated. She'd fallen in love with Tommy, or at least with the idea of him. She'd sent him intimate photos and gifts She'd accepted his marriage proposal. They'd planned a future together and it all meant nothing. Jesse thought she'd never recover from the betrayal. At least Brian was there to comfort her. The 22-year-old was more honest than Montgomery had ever been. 
Whether out of genuine affection or sheer spite, Jessie sent her new boyfriend the racy photos she'd shared with Montgomery. Brian took the fictional Marine's place in Jessie's heart. As it turned out, forming a relationship with Montgomery's friend wasn't enough retribution for Jessie. In online chat rooms, she and Brian repeatedly called Montgomery a child predator, and the harassment spilled out beyond the digital realm. Brian told his co-workers at the Dynabraid factory about Montgomery's ruse, bragging that he was now in a relationship with Tall Hot Blonde. Montgomery's reputation at work took a major hit. In a message to Jesse, he blamed her and Brian for making, quote, half the company think he was a loser and a predator. Montgomery's dirty laundry was now laid out for everyone to see. According to clinical psychologist Rex Raber, when the truth came out and rumors started swirling, it robbed Montgomery of his capacity for self-deceit. In other words, Montgomery couldn't lie to himself anymore. With his secrets revealed both at home and at work, he was forced to accept the fact that he'd never really be an 18-year-old Marine. He was just Thomas Montgomery. But after months of planning for his new perfect life, that was nearly impossible to accept. Once again, Montgomery told Jesse that he was contemplating suicide. Just like the first time, she reacted with sympathy. She confessed that she would always love Tommy and that she'd only struck up a relationship with Brian to make Montgomery jealous. But that didn't seem totally true. Although Jesse repeatedly promised to break off her romance with Brian, she didn't. They continued their relationship and with every passing day, Montgomery grew increasingly cruel and jealous. A part of Montgomery must have known his fantasy could never actually work, but another part of him desperately wanted to be with Jesse. His feelings were confusing, overwhelming, and completely toxic. In retaliation for the humiliation he suffered from his colleagues, Montgomery started making threats at work. We don't know what he said, but it must have been pretty extreme. At one point, a coworker showed up at the Dynabraid factory in a bulletproof vest because of them. They claimed it was a joke, but it wasn't very funny. In addition to tormenting his coworkers, Montgomery bombarded Jesse with abusive messages. He called her names and demanded to know if she'd been sexting with Brian. Jesse was fed up. Likely spurred on by Montgomery's insults, she made plans to get closer to Brian than she'd ever been before. At some point in the spring of 2006, Brian let it slip at work that he was going to West Virginia to meet Jesse in person. She was 18 by that point, so it was pretty clear what the trip was about. Montgomery's simmering jealousy boiled over. This was the final straw. That evening, Montgomery likely sat at home, consumed with thoughts of what Jesse and Brian might do together. He'd seen so many photos of tall, hot blonde. He fantasized about meeting her, even marrying her, and Brian was going to get to her first. But that's not what happened. Before their date, something fractured between Jesse and Brian. 
she accused him of only caring about sex, canceled their meeting, and ended their relationship. Shockingly, Jessie went right back to Montgomery. She told him she missed Tommy. If she couldn't be with the younger, fictional Marine, she could at least keep talking to the person who'd invented him. Montgomery wasn't ready to forgive, however. He said they could only stay in contact on the condition that she cut Brian off completely. He warned Jesse that if she talked to Brian again, he'd make the other man pay. From there, Montgomery's behavior got more erratic. He viewed Brian as his enemy, the person he had to defeat to continue living his fantasy. In one message to Jesse, he claimed he was preparing for, quote, war. He started spending hours at the gym. He reminded Jesse that even though 18-year-old Tommy wasn't real, 47-year-old Montgomery actually was a Marine. He knew how to wield a weapon and wasn't afraid to go to battle. Some of his threats were even more explicit. Montgomery told Jesse that Brian had lost a very good friend and made a very deadly enemy. The behavior wasn't enough to scare Jesse away. She asked Montgomery to calm down and swore he had nothing to worry about. She wasn't corresponding with Brian and she didn't plan to. To prove it, she started sending Montgomery sexual messages. Again, their supposed friendship evolved into a perverse romance. But Montgomery never really let his guard down. One moment, he'd be telling Jesse how much he loved her. The next, he'd accused her of cheating on him and send a barrage of abusive messages to her inbox. He was totally unpredictable, and yet, Jesse took every one of his outbursts in stride. Then, in early September of 2006, things took a turn. One day, Montgomery logged onto MySpace. He'd gotten in the habit of checking Jesse's profile to make sure she wasn't talking to other men. He scrolled through her page and found the one name he couldn't stand to see, Brian Barrett. Montgomery felt like the walls were closing in on him. Jesse had broken her promise. She'd started talking to Brian again. His jealous rage overtook him as he imagined them flirting and exchanging pictures. Worst of all, Montgomery must have known that Brian actually had a chance with Jesse. He was only 22. Of course, Jesse would choose him over a 47-year-old. Montgomery believed there was only one way for him to be with Tall Hot Blonde. He had to get Brian out of the way. Montgomery typed furiously. He called Jesse every horrible name in the book. He told her she should be very afraid, but not as frightened as Brian, whose life now hung in the balance. Jesse had never really listened to Montgomery's threats before. This time, though, something felt different. Terrified, she messaged Brian that Montgomery was threatening them both. Brian shrugged it off, perhaps because he wasn't bearing the brunt of his co-worker's fury. Montgomery flooded Jesse's inbox at all hours with more threats. At first, Jesse tried to talk sense into him. Then, as the abuse continued to escalate, she simply quit responding. 
Montgomery took her silence as another insult. If she didn't answer online messages, he texted her. If she didn't respond to texts, he called. She tried to avoid him, but he wouldn't stop harassing her. On the morning of September 15th, Jessie's phone rang. She knew it was Montgomery. She picked up, intending to tell him to stop contacting her. But before she could speak, he started screaming. Jessie couldn't tell what he was trying to say, and she didn't care. She hung up as quickly as she could. Montgomery had cracked, mentally and emotionally. All Jesse wanted him to do was leave her and Brian alone. But he had no intention of backing down. That same evening, Brian was working at the Dynabraid factory. The 22-year-old would be heading out around 10 p.m. Montgomery sat in the parking lot, waiting for battle. Up next... The love triangle turns deadly, and a massive secret is revealed. Now, back to the story. On the evening of September 15th, 47-year-old Thomas Montgomery sat in the parking lot outside the Dynabraid factory in Clarence, New York. He stared at the building's front doors, waiting for his rival, 22-year-old Brian Barrett, to get off work. He held a 30 caliber carbine rifle in his hands. As a young man, Thomas Montgomery had served in the Marines. He saw his competition with Brian as a battle, and he wasn't one to shy away from combat. That night, he'd arrived ready for a fight or an execution. He wasn't nervous at all. In fact, he calmly ate a peach as he waited. When he was done, he tossed the pit across the parking lot. Then an idea struck him. He didn't want Brian to be able to get away. So he slashed the 22-year-old's back tire. At exactly 10.16 p.m., Brian clocked out. He made his way from the factory to his white pickup truck, opened the door, and slipped into the driver's seat. He didn't notice Montgomery sneaking through the parking lot like a hunter. Before Brian could put his keys in the ignition, three shots pierced the quiet evening. Montgomery hadn't even given his co-worker a chance to fight back. He shot right through the truck's window. Brian died immediately. Montgomery fled the parking lot. By midnight, he was already back home, sitting in front of his computer. He sent Jesse another slew of taunting messages, asking whether or not she'd spoken to Brian. Montgomery might have been trying to establish some sort of alibi, or he might have just wanted to torment her. Because Brian had no plans that weekend, nobody realized anything had happened to him. Two full days passed before a police officer noticed his vehicle hadn't moved. When the detective got closer, he saw the bullet holes in the window. Even through the tinted glass, he could make out the silhouette of a body slumped in the driver's seat. Local police opened an investigation into Brian's death. Through interviews with co-workers, they learned that he and Thomas Montgomery had been vying over the same woman. It was a clear motive for murder. Detectives examined Brian's cell phone and retrieved Jesse's number. They called her confirmed she'd been in online relationships with both Brian and Montgomery. 
and told her she might be in danger. Police planned to interview Montgomery next, but they couldn't find him. For all they knew, he might already be on the way to Jesse's home to continue his murderous rampage. Afraid for the 18-year-old's life, police contacted West Virginia authorities and requested they check on Jesse. Officers were dispatched to the teenager's home. They knocked on her door. But Jesse didn't answer. Her mother, 45-year-old Mary Sheeler, did. She claimed that Jesse no longer lived with her. Investigators asked if she had any way to contact her daughter. Mary said no. Police couldn't understand how a mother didn't have her own child's phone number. Mary clearly didn't get it. They had to find Jessie immediately and protect her, but her mother wouldn't budge. It seemed like Mary didn't want the police to find her daughter. Officers kept pressing until finally, the biggest secret of all came out. Mary didn't want to call her daughter because the real Jesse had nothing to do with the online love triangle. Montgomery and Brian had seen plenty of pictures of Jesse, but they'd never actually spoken to her. All the while, it had been Mary. The 45-year-old mother had been masquerading as her own daughter. Tall, hot blonde, the woman Montgomery killed Brian over was a catfish. Suddenly, so many things made sense. Jesse had seemed incredibly naive. She didn't ask very many questions about Tommy, the fictional Marine. Perhaps it's because she didn't want him to dig for information about her. Maybe she kept talking to Montgomery because she knew she'd betrayed him as much as he'd betrayed her. But there was something even more disturbing about Mary's story. Montgomery's alter ego had been a younger version of himself. Mary's was her own child. When police seized her computer, they found hundreds of pictures of the real Jesse in compromising positions. Mary had followed her daughter around with a camera, snapping photos of her and revealing clothes. Many of the pictures were taken from behind, meaning Jesse probably didn't even know she was being photographed. Her mother had been stalking her in order to exploit her image. And Montgomery and Brian weren't the only people who received these images. Mary had been sending highly sexualized photos of her daughter to a lot of men online. As creepy and inappropriate as Mary's behavior was, it wasn't law enforcement's top priority. They were focused on bringing Brian Barrett's killer to justice. Back in New York, Investigators worked on building their case against Thomas Montgomery. They eventually tracked him down and interviewed him. He admitted to being in a relationship with Jesse, who we still didn't know was a fake, but insisted he never killed anyone. He claimed he'd been at a local restaurant on the evening of the murder and gotten home around 10, 10 p.m., mere minutes before Brian was shot. But Montgomery's wife told police his supposed alibi was a lie. He hadn't gotten home until at least 10.40 p.m. That meant he had plenty of time to commit the murder. Plus, there was a lot of hard evidence tying him to the scene. Detectives found a peach pit and a leather cartridge case in the Dynabraid parking lot. 
The peach had Montgomery's DNA on it, and the cartridge case was covered in hairs that belonged to his dog. As if that weren't enough, Montgomery's 30 caliber rifle, the same kind used to shoot Brian, was missing from his gun cabinet, and records from his cell phone placed him in the vicinity of the Dynabrate factory at the time of the murder. Altogether, that was more than enough for police to take him into custody. On November 27, 2006, 48-year-old Thomas Montgomery was arrested on suspicion of homicide. Behind bars, he learned the truth. He wasn't just the catfish. He was also the catfished. He'd destroyed his marriage and killed an innocent person for nothing. It's impossible to know how Montgomery reacted to the news, but it must have been crushing. He had a whole fantasy life planned out, then reality came crashing down. Nothing that happened between him and Jesse was real, and yet he'd killed someone over it. He didn't transform into Tommy, but he did become an unrecognizable version of himself. At first, Montgomery maintained his innocence. He intended to plead not guilty to the charge of second-degree murder. However, with so much evidence stacked against him, his lawyer convinced him to take a deal. On August 20th, 2007, after nearly a year behind bars, Montgomery pleaded guilty to second-degree manslaughter. Although this was a lesser charge than murder, Montgomery still admitted to purposefully killing Brian Barrett. The judge sentenced him to 20 years in prison. Today, Montgomery is totally alone. Cindy eventually divorced him and she doesn't visit him behind bars. His daughter sent him a letter saying they no longer wanted to have a relationship with him. If he serves his full sentence, he'll be in jail almost as long as Brian Barrett was alive. While Montgomery is serving time, Mary Sheeler walks free. She's never been charged for assuming a fake identity or sending photos of her daughter to numerous men. As it currently stands, catfishing itself isn't illegal. Mary exploited the real Jesse and had a hand in a person's death, and yet police can't arrest her for any of it. According to ABC News, prosecutors in New York ultimately determined that she may have trampled all over the moral and ethical line, but never crossed the legal one. But Mary is still facing a sort of punishment. When her husband found out what she'd been up to, he filed for divorce. According to him, she was unwilling to admit she'd done anything wrong. She said she started catfishing because she was bored and lonely and claimed she'd only carried on a relationship with Montgomery to stop him from talking to actual teenagers. Yet that doesn't explain why Mary stalked and violated her daughter. Lying about who she is would be one thing. Assuming her child's identity is another. Mary's daughter has reportedly completely cut off contact with her. It's difficult to comprehend the level of hurt that the real Jessie must feel. Because of her mother's actions, pictures of her are all over the internet, and her name is connected to a young man's murder. As for Brian Barrett's family, they wish Mary Sheeler would face consequences for her actions. Ultimately, Brian was the only member of the love triangle who was honest. 
and yet he was the only one who lost his life. Thomas Montgomery and Mary Sheeler catfished because they felt lonely and unsatisfied in the real world. Neither of them created their digital identities for nefarious purposes in the beginning. But over time, their alter egos took on a life of their own. Sometimes, though, catfishes begin with bad intentions. Next time, we'll dive into the psychology behind why people catfish, and we'll see how another online scheme led to murder. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with the second episode of our catfishing special. We'll cover the Facebook murders, a catfishing plot that involved a small-town family, a CIA agent, and a cold-blooded double homicide. For more information on the Tall Hot Blonde case among the many sources we used, we found Nadia Lobby's Wired article, An I Am Infatuation Turned to Romance, Then the Truth Came Out, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all other Spotify originals from ParCast on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 